Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here, flying the ship solo deep into April. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to get uh, at least two episodes in this month, but uh, real-world uh, real events and uh, real-life responsibilities conspired to take up a significant amount of my time this month, uh, making it very, very hard for me to sit down and put it a full, you know, be able to sit down and really give my full attention to the podcast. So I just haven't been able to uh, cobble an episode together until now. Um, and unfortunately, I'm going to have to cut out. A, I had to cut out a few things that I wanted to touch on uh, this month as we uh, as we do our single episode of Man Tears April, uh, talking about the things that make men emotional. Um, so we will we will get into some of the um, we will get into some of the uh, I guess more of the psychological and scientific ways in which men and women differ in their emotions, um, their emotional attachments, and the things that, that, that actually do make them emotional, make them cry. Um, but So we'll get into a little bit of that, but we won't go as deep into that as I had planned originally. But we will talk about some of the things, some of the, some of the things that uh, in media and pop culture that, do, um, that men identify with and do sort of uh, develop emotional attachments with, and how I do think that those things can be different from the from the from some of the from some of the same uh, you know pop culture media and you know whatever other um, sort of properties out there that women uh, tend to identify with and, and develop emotional attachments to. Um, plus, you know, just well, well, we'll get into it all. Um, so yeah, this is our like I said. Unfortunately, um, I would love to give this like two full episodes. Um, you know, one sort of focusing more on the the scientific side of things and one focusing solely on like the the pop culture side of it but I'm going to bl- sort of blend the best of both here uh, and and talk through this with everyone for the next uh I don't know about like 90 minutes or so I think that'll be a good length for this episode. All right, so let's uh let's start off with a little bit of the science of this and sort of look into the question um about do men cry more or less than women. Uh, originally I, I had thought about talking more about like are men are men more or less emotional than women? I, I think that's it's a little bit more difficult to answer because I think it's probably just as equal. It's just that men express certain emotions differently. Um, and like, as I said before in the, in the open, uh, oftentimes very poorly. But there is an actual – we do have actual sort of um, data to sort of um, – to sort of look at as a as a guideline for that question, do men cry more or less than women? And the answer is – uh, men cry less than women. This is like a scientifically backed um, and studied uh, sort of, you know, for, for a long time now. We have like 30, 40 years worth of data on this uh, across multiple countries uh, that do that does show that, in fact, women cry more than men. And the obvious sort of the obviously initial sort of reaction to this is that, well, of course, because, you know, there's a, the societal expectation uh, on men across really multiple societies um you know mask you know men are, are men are sort of perceived as this sort of the masculine protectors the stoic emotionless ones um in, in any society and uh, in any relationship you know men are the ones who are supposed to hold their emotions together and that's pretty much that's pretty consistent across um like i said across societies across cultures cr- countries that sort of standard for men is kind of the same um, but there is so, and that is very true. This is a very that is part of the reason as to why men uh, do not cry as often as women. But there is there are actual physical reasons for why men do not cry as often as women. 
Um, and this comes straight out of uh, the American Psychological Association that, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, men, so women have, when they, when they studied men and women's tears, uh, women have more of a hormone co- called prolactin uh, in, their, in their tears. And this is actually something, this is actually a hormone that actually promotes crying. Um, and it's seen in higher levels in women. So, you know, it's it's one of those things. This chemistry, your body chemistry is sort of um, making you more predisposed to crying than you're going to do it more often. Uh, there's also a, a, a pretty good um, scientific backing for the fact that testosterone may also inhibit crying. So, you, uh, so it, we have two things working here. Um, women having more of a hormone that encourages crying, men having less of it, and men having a, obviously being, having more of the, more of the uh, a hormone that uh, that actually inhibits crying, so there's a reason why men cry significantly less than um, than women. In fact, um, here let me real quickly here. Um, uh, biochemist, biochemist William Frey, PhD, found that women cry an average of 5.3 times a month, while men cry an average of 1.3 times per month. Um, so even through newer research, that those numbers have really that was from uh, uh, William Frey's uh, research was in the 1980s. But even modern research has kind of kept those numbers basically at the same levels. Even when you go across, like I said, even when you go across different countries, um, there's a study uh, across 35 different countries that found that um, that found that uh, these basically these same numbers. I, actually, I'm, I'm sort of scrolling through it right now as I look at it. Doesn't give me the exact numbers, but basically the same data is borne out that men do cry less than women. But it is interesting to note that this study also does sort of lay out um, a sort of uh, a, a you know a cultural reason for why some of these numbers might be more pronounced or less pronounced in some of these countries. So um, let me let me read this sentence here for you. A study of people in 35 countries found that the difference between how often men and women cry may be more pronounced in countries that allow greater freedom of expression and social have, and have better social resources, such as Chile, Sweden, and the United States. Ghana, Nigeria, and Nepal, on the other hand, reported only slightly higher tear rates for women, meaning women only cried slightly more. While they still cried more than men, the, the, the difference was only slightly more. And probably has to do, again, with, with countries that have um, more um, conservative social views and conservative views on um, self-expression. Um, you know, crying is going to go right, right along with that, with other forms of expression. So uh, those kind of countries uh, do not have such a, they have lower cry rates anyway. And the difference between men and women is a little bit less pronounced because it's sort of just kind of frowned upon in general for people to express themselves that way. Besides uh, our body chemistry and sort of cultural and societal expectations, there are other reasons why uh, women tend to cry more than men. There's this idea of different attachment styles, um, you know, secure attachment, insecure attachment styles. Um, but there's, you know, someone with a secure attachment style that usually like it's a healthy relationship and they don't feel as bad. Their, their tears and their crying and they're showing emotions is a bit different from people with insecure attachment styles where... I guess those would be the people that you would call hysterical or um, people with, who are, are overly emotional uh, would be like insecure attachment styles. But that's not I don't want to focus on that. What I want to focus on are people with dismissive attachment styles. Um, and these are people who tend to cl- avoid close relationships with others. Um, so, you know, people who are, you know, maybe not 
maybe not purposely single or maybe in some cases purposely single, but single people tend to have more of a dismissive attachment style, especially people who have kind of been single for a long time. And I do think where I'm going with this is that um, recently there is uh, recently there was some uh, Pew Research uh, data that found that um, uh, let me pull up the exact numbers here. Uh, as of 2022, Pew, Pew Research Center found 30% of U.S. adults are neither married, living with a partner, nor engaged in a committed relationship. Nearly half of all young adults are single. Now, this is where it gets sort of, this is where I'm going with um, the dismissive attachment style. Nearly half of all young adults are single. 34% of women and a whopping 63% of young adult men, young adults, excuse me, are single men. Um, when you have such a staggeringly different um, uh, when you have such a staggering difference in data in, in terms of, you know, who's single and who is not, and, and most of that making up men by vastly making it two thirds, uh, are, are men or, or two thirds of single people are single men. Um, that just goes to show you that, that there's a, a, probably the, uh, the dismissive attachment style is much more prevalent in single men because they're not in relationships. They're not in they're not in relationships that would sort of allow them to open up in a secure way or perhaps even an insecure way. So there are just a significant amount more men who are really never in a position to even, to even share that emotion with anyone and open up and cry, um, which I'm sure um, affects that sort of overall number of, um, I believe it was five point, women crying 5.3 times per month and men crying 1.3 times per month on average. So I think that there's there's a lot more that goes into it than just the societal expectations, though it certainly is one part of it. Um, there's a chemical component, and then there's a, obviously a social component to it as well that sort of um, maybe um, keeps maybe keeps a very large chunk of men from opening them, from opening up and being emotional and vulnerable for people. There were a lot of interesting things uh, in a lot of these. Um, it's not like I read the full blown uh, <clears throat> academic studies, but in in some of the sum, uh, summations for these studies is pretty interesting. Um, just these these are neither here nor there, but just sort of interesting little tidbits as far as men and women crying goes. Um, one of the big things, one of the big things for crying, uh, for the idea that that you sort of the idea of having like a good cry maybe is a little bit overstated. Um, there's not like a lot of research that backs up the idea that if you just sort of like let it all go, um, that you, that you really feel any better about yourself. Um, but there is sort of research that's, that does back up, uh, the idea of who sees you cry. Um, you know, who is there to like witness your crying can really, um, have a positive or negative, um, sort of a very, I should say a very like polarizing positive or negative sort of, uh, effect on your emotions. Um, you know, certain, obviously certain people, like it's okay for certain people to be witness to the crying, um, you know, be it, uh, you know, a close family member, um, close friend, something like that. Um, or, you know, or someone, someone that you trust, basically, I think that's probably, probably more important. And obviously it would be like a close, a close friend or a family member, but crying in front of someone that you trust, um, definitely seems to be more cathartic and therapeutic. Whereas, you know, crying in front of strangers, crying in front of, um, crying in front of someone that you just don't know that well. I mean, it, it makes sense, right? But it, that it would be sort of, it, it wouldn't have the same sort of therapeutic effect. But in fact, it actually has the op opposite effect of sort of f uh, in, increasing embarrassment and shame 
uh, if someone cries in front of a stranger. And I think, and I knowing how how important that sort of outward appearance is for men, the sort of peacocking is for men that can probably be doubly damaging uh, to men's emotions if they are if they're seen crying in front of someone that uh, that they don't that they don't implicitly trust. Um, another another really interesting little piece here that that I picked up that I just want to share before we move on to the next thing is the people who have the inability to cry, right? Like, you know, people have dry eye. I am actually a person, it's not severe, but I use, I use eye drops uh, frequently because I have dry eye. Um, and there are some people that have, uh, there are some people that have extreme dry eye and other sort of syndromes, um, you know, that, that actually cause them, you know, that cause people to not be able to produce, produce tears at all. And it's very interesting that like, crying is one of our most you know obviously we cry as babies babies cry um it's one of our most like basic um base level instincts and base level sort of um i don't know what's the word what's the term like psychosomatic responses to stress um you know tears basically are like a universal signal for us that like we need help we need support we need something from somebody um and imagine not being able to do that having I mean, literally physically not being able to sort of to signal to people in a very basic way that you need help, that you need attention, you need support. It can kind of definitely be like a real psychological mindfuck. Um, in fact, there's so there's a, a syndrome called I, I, I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong, but Sjorgen syndrome, uh, where people have great have really hard time producing tears. Um, a PhD candidate, uh, Ninka Van Leeuwen, um, at, uh, from uh, PhD candidate at the, at the Utrecht University in the Netherlands, uh, found that 22% of patients with the syndrome had significantly more difficulty identifying their own feelings than control patients did. So these people with Sjorgens, 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 I don't even know, I truly do not know how to pronounce it, um, syndrome on their own could not like tell whether or not uh, or had trouble identifying um you know their own sadness their own happiness their own fear like those kind of things were um were a little bit foreign to them because they've never had the ability to cry um and they've never had like the sort of the psychological and therapeutic release of crying or the psychological and therapeutic experience of crying so you know it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal but, um, you know, not crying is one of those things that sort of defines us as humans. And when people do not have that ability, it is something that can lead to um, lead to sort of interesting psychological complications. I mean, in fact, there's I know that there's like a there's a worry when children don't when ch- when young children don't cry or don't have certain um, emotional reactions that, um, you know, it, it can be like a. I feel like it could be like a, a, a harbinger for autism, um, certain other, you know, other spectrum disorders, certainly kids that don't cry. Um, I guess if you watch enough law and order and, uh, Lord knows I've seen enough of those episodes over the years that, you know, children with children who don't cry, that's sort of like also like a early indicator of potential psychopathy, um, that, you know, maybe you have the next Jeffrey Dahmer or, um, Ted Bundy or someone, um, in your hand, on your hands. So, you know, don't underestimate like what it actually means to cry and the importance of crying in grounding someone in the human experience. Um, it, it's just, it's, you know, obviously 
other animals have other animals in the animal kingdom have emotions and things like we know that for sure but crying is something that is uh, pretty unique to humans in the way that we signal um you know we signal our distress and our need for uh for support uh to one another so just thought that was also pretty interesting a pretty interesting part about the the crying thing that doesn't really have anything necessarily to do with uh, what we're going to get into but just thought it'd be kind of cool to uh to to hit on that as well Oh gosh, almost for actually. So there's another one that I wanted to go over too, that I just kind of found very interesting. Um, that uh, that sort of goes with the it kind of fits in with the, with the male stereotype of like not crying and, and the stoicism and everything else. Is that um, there's some research that suggests um, I think this research was done by the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. Um, research that suggests that female ter- female tears can actually be a sexual turnoff for men. Um, so the, the methodology is a little bit weird, but, um, pretty consistently men just weren't, basically men weren't, um, weren't interested and weren't aroused by women who were, who were emotionally crying. Um, which again, it just sort of, I, I think that, I think that it kind of makes sense. It's one of those things that inherently just sort of feels right. And I think if you just, you know, apply a few levels of thinking to it, you know, Men not crying anyway, uh, men sort of, um, you know, in a, in a cultural sense, men not sort of being the ones that you're supposed to like cry to or have seen crying probably wouldn't handle other people crying that well either. Um, so it is just sort of, it's just one of those other pieces of the puzzle that just sort of fits in and makes sense. Um, certainly it's, it's not like it's, this isn't one of those things that was studied super, super hard and we have like, you know, extreme, like a, a very like, um, you know, hardened facts on this at this point, but it is just something that that research that has been done and has been replicated, and I just find that very interesting. That um, that again, another little piece of this puzzle here that just sort of seems to fit, even if it doesn't, um, you know, doesn't really matter for us as we go forward here. But it's another piece of this puzzle that just seems to fit. So let's get into it now. What makes men emotional? <clears throat> and I wish I had some like awesome sort of like bam here here are the big huge differences but quite frankly the same things make men emotional that make women emotional make everyone emotional but what i want to get into is some of the sort of the different ways that um i should say the specific instances that i think are much more um are much more things that men have to deal with in these sort of uh in these sort of i I just outlined them to four sort of major major sort of categories here um so what makes men emotional family makes men emotional obviously relationships make men emotional death makes men emotional success success and failure makes men emotional and i'm going to get into the sort of the different uh how i'm sort of making differentiating these between like what um i should say not differentiating but giving more of the specific examples for like what is emotional about these specifically to men so we'll start with family, all right? That's, you know, our, our good place to start. It's the it's the thing that probably causes us the most, causes all of us to go through the most emotions, uh, our own family. Um, but in particular, I, I want to talk about the father-son dynamic um, is something that makes men cry, that makes us emotional. And it's, it's not that, it's not that men don't have good relationships uh, with our fathers. We have different relationships. And oftentimes, they're a little bit more difficult. Um, and I say that because like the mother and son dynamic is very easy. Quite frankly, 
the mother to anyone <laughs> dynamic is a little bit easy easier because generally speaking, and this isn't like again, this isn't a universal thing. Um, every family has their own dynamics, but on the whole. Um, the mother-son dynamic is easy because your mother is a much more forgiving and sensitive person than your dear old dad. Um, there's a good chance that your mother was the primary caregiver for the first several years of your life. Um, so, you know, you you got to, when you were a, a kind of just a ball of emotions and a mess, you know, in a, in a young mess of a human being or barely a human being at that point in time, your mother was probably there for all of it. Not saying that your dad wasn't, um, but probably more generally speaking, uh, you you were um, you were taken care of by your mom probably more more often. Um, think about it this way: you probably still tend to confide in your mom over your dad. Um, you know, I, I, there's always this sort of like um, in pop culture. You know, there's always this sort of like the, the the mother, or in some cases, the grandmother is sort of like the keeper of all secrets and knows everything, and it's kind of the I, I guess like the um, the central nervous system. Uh, the brain of the family, if you will, because like it's just everything goes through her, and there's a reason why this stereotype exists. I know it. I know this dynamic 100% exists in my family, where my mother is, you know, she is the center of all gossip, and people talk to her. And my dad's just kind of on the outskirts um, of this sort of uh, of this flow of information, and quite frankly, so am I. Um, um, you know, but my but my mother, my sister, uh, my aunt. Um, my 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 cousins, like my my female cousins, they're sort of the they are definitely the the sort of the the secret keepers and the people who are transmitting the most data amongst our family. Uh, whereas the men are just kind of like hanging out, um, just doing our thing. Um, again, it's not like a good or a bad thing. It's just that's just the dynamic in a lot of in a lot of um, families. That's just the dynamic. Um, so and and I think this dynamic is changing like that. Um, father-son relationships are definitely probably getting uh, a little bit easier. But if you're a man of a certain age, you know, around my age or older, it's very likely you have a father who might be like a tremendous great person that probably isn't as in touch with their emotions as younger people are and really isn't as in touch with their emotions as they as they themselves could be. Um, it's just, this just goes back to, you know, we talk about the societal expectations. This just goes back to the idea that, um, you know, even when even when we were young men, um, you know, I'm I'm almost forty. That even when I was a younger man, that like it wasn't. It's even then, it, in more recent decades, it still wasn't sort of. It still wasn't sort of a thing that like, it, you know, not say that it wasn't okay for men to cry or something like that, but it still wasn't like sort of as self expression like that. Still wasn't sort of as open as it is now. And certainly if you go back far enough to like when my dad would have been a young man, like in the in the 60s and 70s, it certainly was not, um, you know, something that was uh, that was open and OK for you to be like emotional back then. Um, so, you know, the farther back we go in, you know, the far, more generations back you go, the more that traditional stoic male dynamic is in effect um, and <clears throat> the more likely it is that. You, you have, so, you know, the earlier you're born, if you're born in the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, whatever, there's a very, very good chance that your that your dad, as great as a person as he might have been, probably wasn't very in touch with their emotions because they just weren't, they were not expected to be. Um, and that's just, uh, you know, again, that's just the way it was. Um, there's a really great, there's a really interesting example of this um, that, oddly enough, comes from Everybody Loves Raymond. I don't remember the exact framework of the episode but i feel like 
I feel like uh, Ray, Robert, and their dad were supposed to go, to, and Frank were supposed to go to uh, therapy, like a therapy session together. And instead, they blew off the therapy session and went to the racetrack. And kind of by accident, they actually found that like the racetrack was like their version of therapy, where they got to go, um, you know, hang out with each other and talk about things that they probably don't really talk about otherwise. They wouldn't have talked about otherwise. And there's this really great kind of um, this is really great sort of example of like sort of the changing dynamic of of, of fatherhood between um, Frank and Ray. Um, they're talking, you know, Frank is uh, kind of yelling about it's not yelling, but you know how uh, um, how Peter Boyle kind of did that sort of stern voice for for Frank. Um, not really criticizing Ray about the way way he raises his kids, but like that they were, you know, that like men today are a little bit too soft and you know, raising a soft generation, you know, that kind of, that kind of general, that kind of general talk from, from the, from the older boomer generation. Um, and as they kind of, as they kind of get into, you know, Ray defending his parenting style more, um, Frank says, well, you know, at least, you know, I, I wasn't, at least I wasn't like my dad. I never hit you. And they both kind of said, you know, they both were kind of surprised. They clearly had never heard their dad say that, you know, their grandpa had hit him. And he's, and he just says, well, and they, you know, they ask, well, why didn't you, why didn't you hit us? And he says, well, I didn't want to do that to you. I, that was just something I, I, I didn't want to pass that down to you. I didn't want to subject that to you. So there, you know, there are sort of, it's, you know, there's one of those like sort of like touching moments that, uh, you know, they, they kind of try to play for laughs or, you know, not play for laughs, but, you know, try to get like a little bit of comedy out of. Um, but it was one of those very interesting sort of moments where like, yeah, like the, 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 the idea of the, the father son dynamic really has changed, uh, pretty significantly in just the course of like 60, 70 years where it was very okay to, you know, for a father to come home from work. And if the, if the kids, if the kids weren't doing something they like, especially if the son wasn't doing something they like to, to give him a whooping. And it was just very interesting to hear in this like sort of in this this i i enjoy everybody loves raymond but this is definitely very much a a sitcom of its time it was interesting to hear that sort of um that sort of detail written about the characters about how vastly different ray is raising his family than than frank raised robert and ray and how different uh their grandfather was towards frank so i i just think that that's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic and it is something that causes a lot of strain um you know, hopefully that hopefully that this sort of dynamic and and the coming generations is a little bit more emotionally open. Uh, it seems like it's heading that way, um, and that's definitely a, a good thing for sure, for sure. Now, in terms of relationships, I think men are especially emotionally affected by breakups. Again, not saying that women are not, but men are historically terrible at working through bad breakups. Lord knows I've been there. Um, and probably will be there again at some point in time in my life. But it's, I, I just, I, I think the, I think the feeling is very different for men because of going back to sort of some of the cultural and societal expectations. I think that there's an inherent feeling amongst men that being broken up with or even rejected, not even necessarily, you, you didn't even get to the point of being broken up with that. Like the a relationship didn't even get far enough for you to sort of be officially uh, an item that then was broken up, you know, just being rejected 
cuts deeper. I think that cuts deeper than the scorn of not being favored anymore. I, I really think that a lot of men sort of view this as some kind of commentary on their societal worth, their masculinity, their sexuality, their intelligence, when it's probably more of a reflection of their terrible personalities and terrible behaviors. Um, again, not that not I'm not saying that's the reason behind every single breakup, but but men just really are bad at handling breakups. Um, I mean, there's entire there's an entire genre there's an entire genre of thriller movies where men stalk their ex girlfriends. Um, I mean, that literally is like the that's like I don't know every other Hallmark movie is basically some example of of a, a terrible of a terrible of a man in a, a terrible relationship that broke up and a man not being able to let it go. And if you think I'm just sort of being hyperbolic here. Um, obviously there's, um, you know, King Henry VIII and his beheaded wives and all the women that he divorced. Um, that was, that's probably one of our most famous examples, but one of the more interesting examples is Caroline Lamb and Lord Byron. Uh, Lord Byron's a bizarre character that I've mentioned before in the podcast who's kind of like, um, kind of like, I, I, hard to sort of explain exactly who he is, but he's almost like a a Paul Bunyan-esque character where, like, nothing about him seems real, um, but this guy actually existed um, in, in England in, like, the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, so the Caroline Lamb and Lord Byron were sort of on and off again. Um, here are some of the highlights who... Here are some of the highlights of, and this is, like, a great quote, highlights from two people who, were seemingly, who seemingly got more pleasure from breaking up than they got from their relationship. Um... In August of 1812, near the end of their relationship, Caroline chopped off a chunk of her pubic hair and sent it to sent it to Lord Byron. Um, in response, Lord Byron sent her a gold locket. Great. Um, let's see, where, where's the next sort of, I should have typed out this list entirely. Um, Caroline Lamb wanted a miniature painting of Byron um, that was, that he had, um, I think his, her, excuse me, his publisher had, um, but it was in his possession, obviously. So she forged a letter and um, it was such a good forgery that uh, this guy Murray gave her the painting. Um, Byron was pissed off. So um, their negotiation was for an exchange for the painting. Byron had to give uh, her a lock of his hair. Instead, he sent a lock of his new girlfriend's hair. Um, she, she burned him in effigy. Um, he wrote, this is my favorite little quote from this. He wrote mean things about the tell-all book she wrote about him later saying it wasn't so much a kiss and tell as it was a fucking publish. Um, they, these two like maniacs basically were just in, in both prose and in real life were just taking every chance they could for years to, um, to just sort of defame and slut shame and just harangue each other. Um, so yeah. Uh, and Byron kind of a noted, like very emotional man anyway. Uh, it's just sort of like, again, just men are terrible at breakups. Here's someone who was probably worse at, uh, at breaking up than, uh, than Lord Byron and that's Emperor Nero. Um, and this one is very, very horrific because it's Nero. Um, one of the, like the, you know, one of the fa fame for being a very a particularly cruel, um, uh, Roman emperor. But so uh, let's see here. Um, Nero divorced and then killed his first wife in order to marry his uh, wife, Papa Sabina, um, who was thought to be the most beautiful woman in Rome. 
but their remote their relationship was very tumultuous. After one bad quarrel, he kicked her in the pregnant stomach, which some Roman historians say killed her. Some say it was an accident, but pretty much everyone agrees it was on purpose that he kicked his uh, pregnant wife and she died from it. Um, so what was Nero's response to this? He castrated a 14-year-old boy slave and made him pretend to be the new empress of Rome. Nero dressed him up like a woman and referred to him as Sabina. So um, not the healthiest processing of, of breaking up there in the case of uh, good emperor Nero. So, you know, and there's, there's other sort of, I mean, those are, those are kind of ghoulish, kind of freakish examples of, of breaking up. But there are other, like, sort of, there are other ones that are even just, like, equally tragic. Like, you've, ever, you've heard of the, um, the term, like, a family annihilator. And a lot of times it's, a lot of times what happens is, um, you know, pending a divorce or some other kind of split, uh, the husband, or I guess they don't necessarily have to be married, but most more often than not they are, the husband sort of, the husband goes, basically cannot handle the the idea of losing the family so he kills the entire family it's um one of the one of the more famous family annihilator situations is uh the former uh the late canadian wrestler chris benoit who was a big time wrestler in the 80s and 90s um i want to say he was one of the first sort of like one of the big stars on, on wcw i believe uh during the during the the monday night wars era of uh, of wrestling and um yeah he uh, just killed his entire family one weekend um at his home in uh, i can't remember where he, where he lives in canada lived in canada but killed his entire family because of the sort of the 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 way his relationship with his wife was degrading um and that's just sort of this idea that like these they just can't they can't handle these people can't handle the idea of not having a family and they're sort of it's almost like it's potentially punishment or um, some psychologists view it as maybe like they think that they're doing sort of the noble thing that they, that, you know, the family can't survive or exist without them. It does seem like it's more of a, um, more of a selfish thing than some kind of like weird, weirdly perverted noble thing that like, you know, if I can't have you, then no one can have you is really what it seems like. Um, so men really terrible at handling breakups. Um, it, it is, it is something that like, again, like when I said that at the very top that, it, it, I probably not fair to. It probably wasn't fair. It's probably not fair to ask the question: Are men or women more? Who's more emotional, men or women? Because I think we're both equally emotional. But certainly, men are the only ones doing bizarre things, like castrating slave boys and dressing them up as uh, dressing them up as empresses, um, and killing their entire families. Because men are not great at processing these types of emotions. Um, in fact, men probably should. This is something that men should probably cry over a little bit more, and maybe less of this bizarre shit would happen. All right, so let's get into death real quickly here. And <clears throat> specifically, the death of our friends and peers. Um, there's just something different about someone we share, like a social circle with dying, versus our family members dying. It's not better or worse, it's just different. Like, of course, your your you know father or brother dying is, is very, very emotional. I mean, no doubt. But I think that there's something different about it when it's someone you consider a friend or, you know, someone you, you work with every day, something like that. I think that it brings out a whole different set of sort of emotions and um, sort of emotions and, and, and it's, you have to process it differently. I think, you know, I, I think it's a blunt reminder that you are not invincible. 
um, especially when you're younger and you feel like nothing can do, you know, nothing can derail your life or get in your way. So it's like especially shocking that first time, and it happens to a lot of people. That first time that you're, um, when you're, you know, let's just say like under the age of 25 or so, and that first time someone in your social circle, um, you know, passes away, either you know through more than likely at that young that young of an age, some kind of accident, some kind of potentially violent death. Um, it's just this very blunt reminder and sort of something that I think really makes you introspectively think about um, your own mortality for probably realistically the first time in your entire life. I think even if the friendship is very close, there's a feeling of incompleteness because of the way men just don't share certain details and um, don't the way men communicate with, with one another. It's just very different from the way that men and women communicate and obviously women communicate with each other. Um, and I, I, like I, this is kind of joking, but kind of not like I have gym friends, guy, male gym friends, um, who I'm not really sure what their names are. I've known them for like a couple of years, Like truly, I, I, it's not like we're, you know, we're not shooting the shit every day. In fact, I don't see them as often. Um, I don't see them that often. It's not like I see them every single day. Those people that I see every single day at the same time, um, those people, I do know their names, but there are people that I see very frequently, you know, maybe we've we've given each other a spot or, you know, talked about, you know, something technique or something like that, that I have literally seen, let's say, two to three times a week for two, two plus years. I don't know what their names are. Um, and that's just sort of the way that men communicate with each other. It's just the way that we talk, the way that we hang out, the way that we that we do end up making friends is so much different than the way women make friends. So I, I do think that there's also this very... Uh, uh, the death of one of our peers brings out this very um, sort of emptiness or incompleteness because of how different our communication works. Um, and there probably is this feeling of, of like we just never got to finish that friendship. We never got to um, really go into deep, you know, we never really got to get to certain places with that particular friendship because men just men just don't share feelings and details that way. I think there's also, this is just sort of, and this last point here is just very specific, very, very specific to sort of the the cultural expectations for men. I think that there is, even if it's something like a car accident or, um, you know, an overdose death, there's always, there's this feeling of like, because men are sort of, um, you know, men are sort of in a cultural way expected to be man of action and, and take charge and, and and do things, um, you know, sort of be the ones to have answers and stuff, that there's this element of feeling like you could have done something more to prevent a death, that you could have, like, oh, you know, my, my friend overdosed, I could have, I, I should have called him that day, um, you know, or my, my friend died in a car accident, why didn't I go fucking pick him up that day? Uh, or, 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 you know, probably, or, you know, sort of to extend that a little bit, maybe even worse um, for the, you know, for the for the male psyche is that, that literally it's not something that you could have done not that you could have done something more it's that you didn't do something at all that could have averted the death that you could have like someone you know call actually literally called out for help that someone said that they you know like someone uh you know your your friend who overdosed literally told you that they were going to do drugs that night and you could have and it's like well you know i i'm not i'm not dealing with this that kind of that kind of feeling like where you, you sort of brush it away and you know the worst possible things ha- worst possible thing happens that there's just sort of this um, additional sort of uh, feeling of like 
you were supposed to do something um, because that's your role in society. You're a man. You're supposed to do something about this kind of stuff. Um, obviously, it's not true, and it certainly isn't fair to pile on yourself like that. Um, you know, I <clears throat> uh, now it's gosh, it's almost been it's almost we're closing in in like I think like 18 years or 19 years uh, since one of my friends, my friend Tom, was killed by a drunk driver in college, and there was just this sort of like. It, it everyone everyone that knew him in their in our in our own way sort of had like this very um almost palpable feelings of guilt that like we didn't do something and it's like there's nothing we could do <laughs> like there's just absolutely nothing you could do um no you know you couldn't pray harder for his recovery you couldn't have been there to get him out of the, you know like there's just nothing you could have done it was a, a terrible accident um that you know, took a very uh, funny and kind person off the face of the earth, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, like literally in the aftermath, the, when, when that kind of stuff happens, um, it, it just like everyone around him had this like feeling of like what what could have been done differently? What could have we what could we have done to, to make this not happen or what could have been done to sort of potentially prevent this? And the, the answer is nothing. Nothing could have been done. And it's just. Um, you know, it's, it's very tough emotionally accepting that and working through that. Um, it's also one of the, again, that was actually, um, one of the first times that I like really remember that I really remember crying. Um, I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it right now. Excuse me, but I just remember like that being the first time in my life crying in public with like. My, you know, it wasn't like my parent. It wasn't like when my grand my grandparents died, and you know, crying at the funeral because those were my grandparents. This was like, you know, I, I was at this. I was at the the viewing hours with like my friends, my peer group, and it was like the first time I can like distinctly recall in my life openly weeping and it sort of being encouraged, and you know, being comforted by by my peers like truly the first time in my life it was only like 21 22 or something i think i was 21 then um so like it, it's not like i had many opportunities thankfully i had not like i had many opportunities for uh to to experience that at this point at that point in time but um it, it was like the first time that i can remember sort of just like you know me crying friends crying and it wasn't like it wasn't like some sort of like you know there, there we it's to, to kind of circle back to the idea of like crying in front of people you trust. This is the first time that I cried in front of people that I trusted. Um, and sort of the, it, it really did feel cathartic and it really did feel therapeutic to sort of get that out of my system at that point in time. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if it wasn't with those people that I would have had sort of the same sort of feeling of, of relief and the ability to at that point in time, at least take the first step in moving on. All right, let's move on to the last point here, success and failure, and in particular, how men sort of process the success and failure of others. I think that men um, like being in the company of successful people. Um, we tend to seek out, you know, we tend to, to seek out and put people on a pedestal that we sort of admire, um, you know, within our own social circles. And, um, you know, we that's th there's a reason why certain people hold up certain entrepreneurs and billionaires as, as sort of... Um, paragons of virtue even if they're definitely not um and it's it's almost always men doing that kind of thing so in lieu of knowing a bunch of wealthy entrepreneurs uh, personally men like sports teams that's one of the things that we 
that we definitely tie a lot of our um, our self-worth and our identities to is the success and failures of our teams and even individual players. I It's hard to say, like, I think this can be a problem, but I don't think this is a problem in sort of normal doses. Um, and again, I think that, like, too much of most, probably most in most things in the world, too much of anything is kind of a bad thing. Um, so I don't think that like, I don't think that sort of identifying yourself with a sports team is necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think this is actually a pretty great thing when it can, when it can bring out positive emotions and memories and things like that. Like I, I always will go back and think about the Cavs championship that, um, you know, it was on, it was on father's day. Um, I was with my mom and my dad watching that game actually, uh, when they closed out game seven against the Warriors and like it you know like my mom was really excited but like my dad and i were like literally moved to tears um you know it just reminded us of all the times we used to go to games in richfield all the time which is significantly closer to where we live than uh, than downtown um we used to go to the games of the old old coliseum in richfield all the time saw playoff games there that place was crazy loud uh old richfield is awesome i wish wish we could get that atmosphere back um back now uh but uh, you know, so we so we have been going to games since the the eighties and nine early late eighties early nineties. Uh, we were part of like a season ticket block um, back when they first moved downtown, and uh, we used to go. You know, we used to. I was one of like the way that like the block broke down. I think we got like twelve games or something like that a year. Um, so it was about like or maybe eleven something like that. So it was about like a quarter. Excuse me, we got like a, we split like about a quarter of the of the home games, and. I was one of the, my dad, my dad and I were like, I think I was like the only one that had, uh, I was like one of the only like teenagers, like the other, the other guys had, uh, my, the, my other dad's teaching friends, they had kids, but they're older. So I don't think they, they, I don't think they went that often. Um, but because I, I did go with my dad and I was real into basketball, I was always just like, oh, well make sure that you get the 76ers game. Make sure that you get the Lakers game. Make sure you, uh, because you know, it was like, oh yeah, because we got to see Allen Iverson play. We got to see Kobe play. We got to see you know whoever the young the young stars of the mid to late nineties, uh, you know, into the early two thousands, where we got to see them play. And so like I, I like distinctly recall some of those nights. Those were like the lean days downtown. They weren't really terrible or anything, but they weren't great. Uh, but like I remember seeing uh, Allen Iverson play, and there's only like maybe four thousand people in the arena. Same with like Kobe playing. There's only like four or five thousand people in the arena. Um, so like, I remember all that and it was just one of those, like, you know, one of those full circle moments. Also just, there's also this like sort of the general, uh, Cleveland sports psyche, which is a whole fucking episode on its own. Um, but you know, it's one of those full circle moments, like to, to be there with my dad watching, watching a team that we had watched for years win a title was awesome. And like, just the tears of joy and like the positive emotions that this all brought out. You know, and, and, you know, and like thinking about it, just like even thinking about it now, um, I just get, you know, beyond like the, the sort of the way that like my dad and I shared that thinking about how like proud the city was, how thinking about all the people, literally the, the literal millions of people that turned up uh, for the parade, uh, you know, in the, in the following days was just like incredible. And one of those like very emotional, um, one of those very emotional sort of collective moments. Uh, for people in this region. So I think like it can be very, very good. Now, obviously, obsession, what the, the dark side of this sort of, of, of when, when these sort of um, 
when you when you tie too much of your identity into and too much of your self-worth into a team or players or whatever then it becomes obsession you know it's not something that is it goes from hobby or um hobby or interest to obsession which is obviously a bad thing and i think that's really at play when men get emotional and violent about their teams thinking about soccer riots thinking about like i always remember i, I can't remember the guy's name exactly but there was uh, years ago there was a um a, a Giants fan, uh, I think he was like a firefighter, a police officer, or something, who went down to went down to L.A. for uh, a Dodgers Giants uh, series, you know, a couple games in that series, uh, which you know the the Dodgers and Giants have been rivals since they were both in New York. Brought the rivalry rivalry out to California, and it's you know kind of been bad blood between those fan bases for you know the better part of seventy some years, eighty some years, and or I should say seventy years in California, and you know more closer to a hundred. Uh, overall, um, you know, including their time in New York, but uh, this this firefighter who came down from for a series from San Francisco got attacked uh, by a by a Dodgers fan and was like in a coma, severe brain trauma. Um, I think he, I think he died a few years ago, um, and it's like it, it didn't die directly because of the because this was like over a decade ago. I think this happened, but I think this guy died like a couple of years ago. But I mean, obviously his brain trauma is why he died it just didn't you know didn't manifest in, until like years later but you know those kind of things you know people people throwing you know people attacking players there was uh for several years there was like this weird epidemic in chicago um at the white Sox stadium um i can't remember what it's called now or it was it was like you i mean it was like comiskey like comiskey park or something then but um where fans were running onto the onto the field to attack people um that's that's obsession right like obsession is a bad thing and when you are obsessed with a sports team you are generally going to be emotionally let down because you know think about it even if even the best teams you know you can have a great team and they still have a one in 30 chance at winning a title um there still is they are still going to lose games and bad things are going to happen and when you are far when you are far too wrapped up um in in a team that's when things can go very, very awry. Um, you know, men have men have trouble expressing their sadness anyways, and we've talked about multiple times now. And so it's really even harder to rationally express that emotion when you are so wrapped up and so obsessed with the team identity that you cannot separate a team's up and downs from your own personal up and downs. Um, there's just, um, you know, it, it, there's just a lot of, like I said, the soccer riots, the in-game fan violence. Um, there's a there's actually a movie with Patton Oswalt called Big Fan that's a, about obsession. Um, you could even take something like a, a movie like um, Uncut Gems, which is about addiction and obsession, and obviously collides with the sports world and how like that sort of fan obsession with that sort of that sort of fan obsession like can just like get to weird and dark places. Um, so it's yeah, like it, it is. Like I said, I think most things in moderation like if believe me i get fucking bummed out when the browns do their usual um you know do their usual swan dive in a game that they can easily win and they end up losing um you know they like this past year where they had like a 99 percent win probability against the jets and still managed to lose believe me i get fucking bummed out and i'm really pissed about it um you can consult my twitter account for proof of that but once the day's over that kind of it just washes off 
You know why? Because it's just a goddamn football game. <laughs> that's that's all. It is just a football game. I have more important things in life to worry about, um, more important and things that mean more to me than the Browns could ever mean to me. Um, even as a lifelong Browns fan, there are things that just are more important to me. So, but once once that sort of equation gets flipped, and nothing is more important to you than the Browns, or nothing is more important to you, whatever your your team of choice is, that's when things. That's when your emotions are are no longer can no longer be expressed in a healthy way. All right, how about we get into some examples of this uh, of these emotional things <clears throat> that we just went over um, in media? So let's start with the the family, you know, the father son dynamic. I got two examples here for you. Um, the first one I'm going to start with. It's actually an episode that I I know I've talked about before on the podcast, but I can't remember exactly the context, and it's. The season two episode, <clears throat> excuse me, season two episode eighteen of the show Fringe. Um, a huge Fringe fan. I highly recommend everyone out there go check it out if you haven't yet. Um, and the episode is called White Tulip. Um, this is a kind of a. It's a really interesting. This is certainly one of the best best episodes of the entire series. It's a. It's like a top. It's certainly a top ten episode. Probably a top five episode of the entire series. And it. Um, deals with uh, deals with time travel in particular this uh, kind of a mad scientist played by um Robert or excuse me by by Peter Weller um he of uh, RoboCop fame um he's uh, trying to travel back in time to um to save uh, his his fiance died uh several I believe it's like several months earlier at this point but he has since then been trying to work on a way to travel back in time to save her life um, and this is causing uh, obviously all sorts of problems, um, causing paradoxes and other issues for the fringe team. So they obviously have to go and investigate um, and try to stop uh, the doctor. I think it's Dr. Alistair Peck. Um, but really, where the emotional part comes in here, and the father son, well, the whole fringe, the whole damn show is a, is about a strained father son relationship between Walter and Peter Bishop. Um, but this is one of those times where, like, the it really is at center here because we're you know we're going to talk you know with these two sort of um these two mad scientists uh towards the end of the episode these two mad scientists have this very very deep conversation about sort of figuring out and and reconciling with the fact all the things that they've done uh to try to write to try to write a, a particular wrong um and there is sort of a um so there's discussion about uh you know walter bishop doing the things that he did for a for a family member of his that died, and sort of the um, all of the damage that he's caused uh, over the years, um, trying to you know in, in trying to bring this person and trying to defy death and bring bring this person back. I'm not going to spoil it for you. And trying to defy death and bring this person back and all the damage that has resulted uh, since then, both literal physical damage in the real world and obviously the the relationship damage. And uh, they're having this discussion. You know, Peck opens up to you know talk about all the damage that he caused in his own relationship, and and now the, the damage that he's causing um, by trying to travel back in time. And he he does say that he has a solution for you know whatever. Um, but he gives Walter this sort of like last uh, you know like what what are you looking for? What do you what is going to sort of give you the the closure that you need that like you you know that it, that despite things being your fault no know, knowing that like um you know knowing that uh I, I guess knowing that um 
you're still trying your best that, you know, you're, you are doing the work to sort of make things better. Um, and he kind of mentions, uh, so Peck mentions to him that, you know, a white tulip is a, is a sign of forgiveness. Um, and you know, that, that perhaps, you know, that the sign of forgiveness and, 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 you know, maybe you should look for that, you know, in the future. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> to get on with the, to sort of wrap up the story here. So uh, Alistair Peck does travel back in time, but his solution is to, um, instead of trying to save his fiance, um, he travels back in time to her right before the car accident that kills her. And he just apologizes to her. Cause I guess their, their last discussion was an argument uh, over wedding plans or something. Um, and he apologizes to her so he can kind of spend that one last moment with her before, um, they're hit by they're hit by a runaway truck and they both die, thus closing the time loop, uh, resetting everything. So, you know nothing. So the fringe team never investigates. Nothing happens. But prior to that, he made sure to send uh, Walter Bishop uh, a, an unmarked envelope uh, that contained the drawing of a white tulip, sort of uh, Walter's signal from the you know Walter's signal uh, from God or from the world that uh, you know he's been forgiven. Super emotional episode. I'm not even doing it enough justice. Um, and I think it's probably one of the best examples of the way that uh, this show really blended, very, very well blended um, uh, emotional storytelling and sort of the, you know, the sort of the interesting sci-fi concepts. Um, you know, that was always, even as, it, even as the story got a little bit more into the mythology of what was going on, they never lost sight of sort of giving you those, those emotional beats really, uh, I mean, literally until like the very last moment of the last episode um, was very emotional. So I highly recommend Fringe, uh, highly recommend the episode White Tulip. Uh, excellent, excellent storytelling, excellent example of emotional storytelling. And if you're like a fan of Lost, this is one of Lost's children. This is like, this is actually Lost's first child, uh, if you will, uh, before The Leftovers and before Watchmen. Uh, was Fringe. Uh, Fringe Fringe walked so those other shows could, uh, could uh, or Fringe crawled so those other shows could uh, walk and run, basically. Um, how about Field of Dreams? This is uh, maybe the most, maybe, I, I, would, I would say for especially men about my age and a little bit older, this is maybe our most easy example of something that in media that makes us cry, legitimately makes us cry. The ending of this movie, if, if you are, Again, if you have, have have any kind of relationship with your father, good or bad, this is the ending of this movie. If you if you're not moved to tears, then like you maybe you're not an emotional person at all. Um, you know, it, it ends with um, you know all the fiction, you know all the the ghosts of the ball players past playing on the on the field in Iowa in Dyersville, Iowa, and um, you know the last player off the field is uh, Ray Kinsella's dad. Uh, who he had been estranged with and had like a re- recent rough patches with before he died. Uh, John Kinsella, he was a, a catcher, you know, a, the, a one-time catcher for the Yankees previously, like in the, when he was a young man, it would have been like the, the 50s or maybe even the 40s at that point in time. And so he sees the young version of himself, of his dad, and they have a discussion about heaven. And, um, you know, without without saying it explicitly, um, you know, the conversation is just like an apology that, you know, an apology and like an acceptance of, uh, you know, of the acceptance of, uh, of, you know, I shouldn't say acceptance of forgiveness for, for a bad relationship. And it all gets sort of, uh, I wouldn't say all erased, but it's eased in, it's very, it's eased for Ray 
when he asks when he you know, he calls him John at first. In fact, they they shake hands and they start to walk away. He says, "Well, it's nice to meet you, John." Um, but then as soon as he starts to walk away, he calls him dad and says, "Want to have a catch?" And legitimately, one of like tear like I'm getting like a little bit misty eyed right now talking about it and thinking about it. Just the act of having catch of having a game of catch throwing throw the ball around is enough is enough communication for men to understand that like you know we are simultaneously we're using this sort of symbolic act to simultaneously apologize and forgive each other um super emotional moment great ending to a great movie um field of dreams watch it now in terms of relationships um I'm going to go with something this is you know this is clearly on both men both parties on both the man and the woman in the relationship but think about it this way eternal sunshine and the spotless mind joel and clementine are both willing to have their memories of each other extracted from their minds rather than to try to reconcile or move on like normal people um and even then it, it you know when i kind of talked about how um you know maybe men aren't as willing to sort of let go it, it still doesn't really fully take for joel um, right? Like it, it still is sort of a battle in his own mind to forget Clementine. Um, and obviously there's, there's more, obviously a lot more happens than, than I'm sort of summarizing here. Um, but they obviously decide to oh, go ahead and give it another try. Um, but yeah, it, it, it just in terms of sort of these relationships, uh, I mean, imagine, imagine just hating someone so much or someone causing you so much pain that you feel like the only step you can do is to literally, erase them from your from your memories altogether it's just some extreme shit uh but what a great movie eternal sunshine of the spotless mind uh just a good example of how um how poorly some people handle relationships uh an even worse way to handle a relationship and the ending of a relationship here is memento um leonard shelby uh played by guy pierce he's you know he has uh from an attack uh he has anterograde amnesia which means he can't form, um, you, know, tr- you know, he can't hold on to like new memories. Basically, he can't uh, learn anything new, know new information. I, I, this is a real thing, but like in terms of the way it's presented in this movie, this is obviously a significantly more extreme uh, version of the reality of his condition. But Leonard Shelby has constructed an extraordinarily elaborate web of lies. Um, as, as we learn throughout this movie, to convince himself and his brain-damaged self that he is in control of his life and to hide the fact that the, the vengeance he's seeking for his dead wife is not vengeance. His wife was not murdered. She committed suicide, and it's something that he cannot accept. Um, so he continues, So he continues, because he can't form new memories, he continues this very elaborate... Um, violent fantasy world rather than face the reality that his wife survived this attack that uh, left him with his condition and um, he is responsible for her he is actually responsible for her death or suicide Um, but he just won't confront that Um, he would rather live in this very very um, stressful and violent web of lies than face the truth and if that is not um, if that's not a bad way to handle the ending of a relationship, then I don't know what is. All right, how about we move on to death here? Uh, and just to sort of break up the movies kind of thing here, I'll go with uh, a character that I've mentioned before uh, from a video game I play called Destiny, and this is Osiris, a, um, 
they're they're called warlocks in um in the game he's basically a very uh all-powerful wizard type of uh character that uh techno wizard i guess um but uh, he does a lot of ethically ethically questionable experiments and all kinds of unethical things to literally break space time to bring back his long dead lover um you know there isn't in this case it is sort of the sort of the unwillingness to accept death that he is willing to break laws of nature and physics he's willing to drag people into this with him no matter the cost just to get what he wants just to sort of defy death uh, because he feels like it's his duty to do that uh even though and you know even though he ends up bringing his lover back um and you know that we we bring that that particular character back into the fold it is sort of like a you know his lover uh this it, it'll get too strange if i get too, into too many details but his lover basically does does scold him like i never asked for you to do this this is like our story ended long a long 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 time ago um and you know you just couldn't accept it and one of those things that like sort of uh, I know it's a little bit a little bit farther out there in terms of uh, the sort of uh, the sort of stuff we already went over with you know the way that men deal with death, but this is also this is definitely a, a very unhealthy way to deal with death, right? Um, don't tar- don't try to time travel, don't try to break the space time continuum. It's always bad, um, but in a more realistic way uh, of how poorly um, you know how poorly we we react to death as men, uh, the Hurt Locker, this very it's a very great example of survivor's guilt and you know the reckless way that these men on this bomb disposal unit especially uh jeremy renner's character i want to say sergeant james um the very reckless way that he approaches this incredibly dangerous job because he doesn't care anymore um the he is so racked with survivor's guilt and he is so he is so obsessed with the things that have happened in the past that he just doesn't care about himself or his future anymore, right? Like when we kind of see towards the ending of the movie where he's at home and just the, the mundaneness of the mundaneness of his life at home and but also this the idea that like who gives a shit? You know, like that's why he re-ups and at the very end of the movie we see him uh, back in Iraq, um, you know, going to do going to disarm more bombs because he just doesn't give a shit. Um, he never processed, he never properly processed, um, you know, all the deaths and it's just something that, that, that will haunt him forever. So the Hurt Locker for sure, a must see movie. I think that was right before they put Catherine Bigelow into movie jail, but, uh, I can't remember how, I can't remember what movie it was that put her in a movie jail, but, but, uh, this was, uh, definitely one of her best for sure. And surprisingly, um, it's not that hard. I already mentioned a movie before called Big Fan. Uh, that's about a sports obsession but how about another one that i think is um it's a little bit underrated it's not like it's a it's not like it's some hidden gem necessarily but i think it's un, a little bit of an underrated movie in the uh, filmography of the late great tony scott and it's uh 1996 the fan uh, with robert de niro and wesley snipes um it's actually got a great cast it's like de niro snipes i want to say i want to say like ellen barkin john leguizamo it's got a great cast um but in the fan, uh, Gil Renard's personal life is completely falling apart. Can't, you know, he's a bad salesman. His wife's leaving him, um, you know, fracturing their their family. Um, so Renard's life is falling apart. So he becomes hopelessly, emotionally obsessed 
with uh, Bobby Rayburn, uh, who's who's already his favorite player, and then signed with his favorite team, the San Francisco Giants. Um, so now he is he is one hundred percent making his life about Bobby Rayburn and the Giants. Um, he's stalking him. He's uh, you know harassing his family, um, and eventually attempting to kill uh, Bobby Rayburn. And obviously he does not. But it is sort of a um, an interesting study in how in how quickly um, how quickly someone can fall into obsession and how fast that obsession can take shape into something very very uh, malevolent and violent. And uh, you know, again, like it's like I said before, I think I think sports are a really really good thing. Um, you know, and, and sort of having that identity. Uh, you know, making that a small part of your identity is a very good thing, but making it your whole identity, um, as as this movie um, as this movie posits, is obviously a very terrible thing. Um, so, a, a hidden gem, um, I, a little bit of a hidden gem. Certainly, just an intro. This is definitely like a um, if it's if it happens to be on on like a Sunday or Saturday afternoon and you're not doing anything, sit down and watch The Fan. It's a pretty good movie. All right, how about we wrap wrap up with some quick emotional recommendations? Uh, some of these will just be sort of singular episodes, and in, in the first case here, it's just going to be a single scene. Um, but but I, So I'll start with that, but I'll, I'll recommend the whole trilogy. But the ending scene in The Return of the King, where we crown Aragorn um, as king, that's The Return of the King, we have that whole ceremony with all the characters, We've gone through the, the the journey with the whole scene is just such a great capper to an unbelievable journey. But when they get to the the hobbits and they go to bow to Aragorn and he just tells them, No, 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 you guys, friends, you don't bow to anybody. And then all of the you know, all of the, the you know, the humans and the elves and, and the everyone uh, bow down to the uh, bow down to the hobbits. Such an emotional moment, like legitimately makes me a little bit teary eyed thinking about it now. But also, like, I just watched it recently. Well, for this, obviously, I just watched it very recently. And the look on Frodo's face when everyone bows to the hobbits, it's just this mix of, like, relief, sadness, joy, disbelief. It's, uh, it, there's a lot, there's a lot that Elijah Wood is doing with his face there that just sort of, like, a lot of emotions running through him at once. I think probably the overwhelming one is disbelief that, like, they survived everything that they did. And this is sort of like their, you know, whoever would have thought that these like little people would have been, you know, you know, the, the king, the king of the of Middle Earth would have been bowing to them and honoring them. Um, it's just such a great capper to an unbelievable journey. Obviously, highly recommend uh, all of the um, all of the uh, uh, Lord of the Rings movies, um, but certainly the the ending there is is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, sticking with the fantasy realm. How about uh, what what I call the last true Game of Thrones episode, and that's A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Um, this is the second episode of the last season, right before the uh, Battle of Winterfell, uh, where there's a lot of sitting around and talking and just discussing and strategizing, and we get a lot of more character moments. Um, you know, Brienne of Tarth is knighted by Jamie, which is like the highlight of the episode, and just such a fucking great moment for... Uh, a really great emotional moment for two characters that have been there since the very beginning, essentially. Um, and, you know, their their journey sort of coming to this point, um, it's just, it's a, such an awesome scene. But we get other stuff, too. Like, we get 
Sansa and Theon together one last time, you know, having gone through like everything that they went through together. Um, you know, it, mostly it being Theon's fault, but nonetheless, him, you know, just the the harrowing uh, the harrowing time that they had with um, with Ramsay Bolton and and what they survived there. Um, this is also the last time we get uh, we get Ed, John, and Samwell together one last time, like at like in Castle Black when they were uh, when they were uh, members of the Night's Watch. Um, just like there's a lot of those moments in this last episode, in this episode, that are just so character driven and so pitch perfect, just kind of makes you long for the makes you long for the early episodes of Game of Thrones. Um, gosh, I think I'm, I think I'm due for another rewatch uh, at some point in time. Uh, but uh, Night of the Seven Kingdoms, great uh, great episode of, of Game of Thrones. It l- literally is one of their. I would say it's like like I said, it's the last to me the last true episode, one of the last true thrones episodes possibly the last true thrones episode but also certainly one of the the series best episodes too it's a it's a top tenor for sure uh then i'm going to go to some animation here uh to wrap up these last couple of emotional recommendations uh i'm going to go to a simpsons episode called and maggie makes three it's uh it's about the about the birth of maggie and, and the circumstances under which she came along and how that uh, significantly affected um, Homer and Marge's sort of long-term plans, and it's the kind of thing that kept Maggie kept uh, excuse me kept Homer Maggie's birth kept Homer uh, working at the nuclear plant, and this is all um, you know in you know in question of like why aren't there any pictures of Maggie around the house because there are none, um, and uh, Marge you know Marge tells Bart like oh, all the pictures or maybe it's Homer tells Bart all the pictures are where they need there are pictures of Maggie they're just where they need to be. Um, and pre- prior in the episode, when Homer has to come back to uh, work at the power plant, um, you know Burns is being himself and he's just being a dick, and he puts up a, uh, a demotivational plaque that says, uh, "Don't forget, you're here forever." And um, by the end of the episode, we see all the pictures of Maggie have been placed all over this um, this demotivational plaque to make it now say, "Do it for her" with all the pictures of Maggie. Such a great episode. Um, literally, I, like I said, I, I know I've said this on the show before. I haven't watched the Simpsons in years, possibly a couple of decades. Um, but of those, those, those early Simpsons episodes were absolute gold. Uh, so, and Maggie makes three is one I would highly, highly recommend. Uh, and then, uh, I'm going to finish up with, uh, the, I think, I think the, the fun offspring, uh, the, I think a show that to me was a little bit more consistently fun, than the Simpsons, um, but it's it's immediate offspring, Futurama, and an episode called "Luck of the Fryrish," um, where Fry is seeking out this like lucky seven leaf clover, uh, and he assumes that his brother took it and um, and you know assumed his identity, and he's just kind of going. He's going to find his his uh, brother's grave in Old New York, and you know dig up and find the, the seven leaf clover. Um, so again, Fry assumes his brother Yancey stole his identity. His he's like this very Philip Fry in this time period, in, you know, a thousand years prior, is a pretty famous person. He's the first person on Mars, um, and Fry's pissed. But like upon, um, you know, upon like learning more, like uncovering the the grave more fully, uh, this Philip Fry is actually uh, his brother Yancey's son, so his his nephew, um, who. Yancey adored so much that he named his son Philip J. Fry after him, and it, it's there's like also in the episode it's like this this Philip this Philip J. Fry 
is like the luckiest man on the planet. Like has like a supermodel wife. Uh, like as, as an astronaut, you know, was the first person on Mars. Uh, was also like in a band that like had a bunch of number one hits. And you know, it's just Fry assumes that it's because of the Seven Leaf Clover, um, but it's actually because he took the name Philip Fry is why he was so lucky, and why he was so beloved. Um, kind of the inverse of what Philip Fry's life was like uh, when he was living in New York and you know in 1999. But uh, really great episode to sort of like show. Uh, I forget. I think the the inscription on the grave is. Uh, oh gosh, let me look up the inscription on the grave real quick. Uh, it's uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It's the 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 grave is Philip Fry, the original Martian. Here lies Philip J. Fry, named for his uncle, to carry on his spirit. Nice, a nice, very succinct little um, little inscription. Very heartwarming. Uh, I'll tell you what. Futurama did a lot of episodes that were very. That tugs at the heartstrings in, in good and sometimes painful ways. There's another episode uh, where Fry finds the the remnants of his uh, of his dog from a thousand years prior, and he does he ends up cloning him, but it's not quite the same. And you know he just finally lets his dog go, and he and he just assumes that like his dog had a great life uh, without him because you know that's just sort of Fry's sort of general outlook on life that. You know, no one really missed him in New York back in 1999, although, as it turns out, many people missed him in New York and uh, back in 1999. And actually, uh, the episode with his dog ends, it's a really, it's a tearjerker in a, in a very surprising way where we see that uh, his dog, I can't remember his dog's name, but his dog, after Fry disappeared, his dog waited for him uh, back at the pizza shop that he worked at, waited for him night after night after night after night until he died. Um, you know, Fry never came, obviously Fry was in cryo and it doesn't wake up till a thousand years later. Um, but, uh, his dog waited for him and died not knowing ever what happened to him. One of those, one of those very, sh- not like shocking, but like, oh, this is, this is emotional in a very different way. Not the sort of the positive way that like, uh, the luck of the Friarish, um, this episode, that episode was very, very different, um, in terms of its emotional heartstrings it was pulling at. So, uh, yeah, Futurama was very good at that kind of stuff. Also, I just think consistently, consistently hit a more funny tone than The Simpsons. But you could, we could sit here and argue that all day. So those are my final recommendations. I'm actually kind of getting a little bit stuffed up. Uh, the, the room suddenly got very dusty here when I was talking about these uh, these things. But I, I think this is a pretty rambly episode. But I think I got to got to some interesting points here. Uh, I will be. We'll be back next month with more full episodes, certainly more than one, as we dive into Movie May, always a great time here here at The Occasionalists, and as we talk Battlefield Cinema. So we will see you next month as we get into some more movies. Until then, thanks for downloading and listening, and we will catch you next time.